0: Welcome to the Life of Christ, Term 4, Lesson 31. We are going to begin in Chapter 5, and we're going to lay a foundation um, before we go ahead, just so that we understand what's actually going on at the time when Jesus came. Now as we look ahead to the New Testament and the birth of Jesus Christ, it is important that we consider what was going on at the time, and briefly look at all the events that led, led to the state that the Jews were in when the Lord came on the scene. And this time I'd like to say with Chuck Swindle, if you know a little about the birth of Jesus, it might be best for you to forget it and start from scratch. (laughs) Okay, it's one of those things where a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. All right. okay. Now to get started, John MacArthur says that from the historical perspective... Israel's United Kingdom lasted more than 110 years, from 1040 BC to 931 BC, through the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. Then the divided kingdom, that's Israel to the north, Judah to the south, extended from 931 BC to about 721 BC. Israel then fell into Assyria in 721 BC, leaving Judah, the surviving kingdom, for 135 years, which ultimately fell to Babylon in 605 BC. Now, about 66 years later, in 539 BC, Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, with Daniel chapter 5 giving us a detailed account of the fascinating events that took place that led to it. Now, even though this is about 31 verses long, It's really worth the time. I'm going to be reading this from the New Living Translation. We'll begin reading here. It was just fascinating and it really showed you what actually happened and what caused the fall of this empire. In Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, A number of years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that he and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, notice where it was from, and the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank toast from them to honor their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Bad move. At that very moment, they saw the fingers of a human hand riding on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote. Now I want you, there's no person attached to this hand. Do you understand? This is just a hand. And he says here, the king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fear. I mean, verse 6. Such terror gripped him that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will wear a gold chain around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men came in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. This is kind of where that phrase, you know, the writings on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) It's where it came from, okay? So, the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned ashen white. His nobles too were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king, don't be pale and afraid about this. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods, During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom as though he himself were a god. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune-tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar... Now this is different to Belshazzar, okay? This has got a T-E in between. All right? Has a sharp mind and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So, Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, are you Daniel, who was exiled from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read this writing on the wall, but they cannot. Verse 16. I am told that you can give an interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor and you will wear a gold chain around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. I love Daniel's reply. Daniel answered the king and said, keep your gifts. Give them to someone else. But I will tell you what the writing means. Let me just stop here for just a minute now. It's a very wise thing that he did. You see, as soon as you attach yourself to someone then you become responsible for them. Alright? And Daniel knows this is not a godly king. He is doing things that he should not be doing. And he doesn't want to yoke himself to this man. Do you understand? He didn't look at all the wealth and go, Oh, yum, wealth. It was like, Oh, you know what? Keep it. Give it to somebody else. We're not doing this. I'll tell you what this means. But then you're going to be responsible for it. I'm walking away. Do you understand? And you need to keep yourself separate from some things. Don't let money tie you to things that God says no. Amen? Especially ungodly things like this. Okay, verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Jump to verse 20. But when his heart and mind were hardened with pride... Notice what happened to him. He was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of an animal. He ate grass like a cow until he learned that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this, yet you have not humbled yourself. Now notice... Whose job is it to humble themselves? The person. It's your job. Amen? All right. Verse 23. For you have defied the Lord of heaven, praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, and neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you breath of life and controls your destiny. Wow. That is a really powerful word. So God has sent His hand to write a message. This is the message that was written. Numbered, God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Weighed, you have been weighed on the balances and have failed the test. You know this is this is another saying that we all hear, don't we? You've been weighed and found wanting. You know, okay, this is this is where it comes from. Divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This is when it's going to change hands. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So now the kingdom has changed hands. And so begins the rule of the Medo-Persian Empire. All right, William MacDonald writes, Persia's attitude was tolerant toward the Jewish remnant. The rise of the synagogue as the local center of worship can be traced back to this period. All right, so this is when the synagogues began. All right, just about that. We want to just build this up, so I want you to get a picture of it. Have you ever just wondered when all this started? When did the scribes come along? When did the Pharisees come along? What caused them to come along? Here's all the background. Okay, this is just for you. Alright, scribes became very important for the interpretation of the scriptures in the synagogue services. So they started building synagogues and so somebody had to bring along the word. Hence the scribes. So this is the beginning of the scribes now. By the time Jesus was born, the synagogue was well developed in organization and was widely spread throughout the Jewish communities of the world. Alright. Following the Persian era came the Greek era. Around 336 BC under the rule of Alexander the Great. Everybody know Alexander, right? Okay. (laughs) MacArthur writes, Alexander the Great defeated the Persian king, Darius III, in three decisive battles that gave him control of the lands of the Persian empire. The land of Israel thus passed into Greek control. Now, William MacDonald adds, the cherished desire of Alexander was to found a worldwide empire united by language, custom, and civilization. Under his influence, the world began to speak and study the Greek language. Interesting what's going on, isn't it? This, of course, prepared the way for not only the language of the New Testament would be written in, but also for people around the world to be able to read and understand it. See how God's just moving now? Okay, so along comes Alexander. He, he's just got this desire, everybody should speak Greek. That's the reason we have our New Testament in Greek now. Alright, it's the Greek New Testament. That's the original language it's written in. And... At the time, because of this... See, i give you a little bit of extra insight into this. Alexander was the sort of person that whenever he came along, he would take over a city and instead of doing what the Romans did, they would just lay waste to the place. Alright? Because they never ever wanted an army to come back against them or have the ability to do that. Do you understand? So when they went through, it was just... They would just wipe them out. Alright? The Greeks were different. They would come along... And they would build schools and libraries and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you, you know, if they came and conquered you, you got a you got a facelift. The whole city was fixed up. So you know, th- there were stories where people would sort of go, "Please come and come and conquer us next." all you know, right because you know i mean it meant prosperity and i mean he he was he was influenced by aristotle and you know it was about learning it was about intellectual growth and you know it was all those sort of things Do you understand and so it, it was a whole different mentality all right if you got conquered you got high tech you know <laughs> right? so it was kind of like yeah people were looking forward to that all right now it be amazing, wouldn't it, if he just lived longer. He died at a very young age. I think 33 or something. Yeah, it's very sad. Anyway, following the death of Alexander, Israel came under Egyptian rule around 323 BC. This is when worship of God became more about outward appearances than inward purity. Alright. Which would have a lasting effect, especially with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Alright, so this is what influenced them. You know how they were always, Jesus would say, you're always dressing a certain way, you're always washing this and cleaning that, and it was always about this outward look? This is where it began. This is what started it. Alright, so like I said, you're going to see where they were influenced, how they were influenced, and why they were the way they were when Jesus got there. So, about 185 years later, so we're coming closer and closer now, around 198 BC, Syria defeated Egypt. And Israel came under the leadership of Antiochus the Great, who decided to outlaw sacrifices, circumcision, and so on, and even defile the Jewish temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. Needless to say, that didn't go down well. So along comes the next the Jewish revolt, okay? This led to the Jewish or Maccabean revolt. And after twenty-four years of war against Syria. From 166 to 142 BC, the Jews finally won. They retook Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, and restored worship. But not all was well. William MacDonald writes, When John Hyrcanus became governor and high priest of Israel, he conquered Transjordan and Idumea and destroyed the Samaritan temple. this This is a key thing now. Remember when Jesus is going to go to the woman at the well? She's going to say... Who's right? This is why. Alright? A division came. Alright? And the Samaritans and the Jews had a real problem. Samaritans are Jews who intermarried. Okay? So this is really important that you get this, because, you know, we think Samaritans were just people that didn't know God. Alright? But they actually weren't. These were people... When the two kingdoms were separated, one kingdom stood strong in their uh, commitment to not marrying outside of their race, and the other kingdom, all right, they they were a bit more lax and were a bit more tolerant in who they would marry, and so they married outside of their race. Okay, and hence came the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are Jews that have kind of mixed. Religion, mixed culture, it's kind of a mixed bag. Do you understand? And so that's the reason why the Jews hated the Samaritans. Because they saw them as people that compromised and that turned their back on God and the purity and all of the rest of it. Do you understand? The Samaritans hated the Jews because they outcast them for marrying somebody they loved and outside of the gene pool, so to speak. Do you understand? So there was this anger between them all right just so you just so you have a little bit of an idea what's going on there that's a very rough 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 uh, overview on that one. Okay, so he destroyed the Samaritan temple. His power and popularity led him to refer to himself as a king. This flew in the face of the Orthodox Jews, who by this time were called Pharisees. And here come the Pharisees, all right, or separatists. They recognized no king unless he was of the lineage of David. And these Hasmoneans were not. Those who opposed the Pharisees were called Sadducees. And there come the Sadducees. All right? They were the righteous ones. These names appeared for the first time during the reign of John Hyrcanus, who himself became a Sadducee. All right, are you getting a little background now? So now we have the temple, we have the scribes, we have the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees. Okay? All right. This independence lasted for almost 80 years until Rome finally defeated Syria and retook Jerusalem from the Jews. Then around 37 BC, about 26 years later, Herod the Great was appointed by Rome to become king of Judea. And here we come. All right. So MacArthur says that Herod was an Idumean by birth, a Jewish proselyte and thoroughly Greco-Roman in outlook. He ruled Palestine from 37 BC to 4 BC, and was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born. Alright, and as to the kind of man he was, wait for this, William MacDonald writes, Although Herod the Great, as he was called, planned and carried out the building of the new temple in Jerusalem, he was a devout Hellenist, and hated the Hasmonean family. He killed every descendant of theirs, even his own wife, Marian, and his own two sons by her. This is the man on the throne when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Does that give you a little bit of insight when he says, Kill all the kids two years and under? This man was just heartless in this way. He'd kill his own kids, he wouldn't hesitate to kill anybody else. Do you understand? Like I said, it just gives you some insights into what was going on at the time. Amen? And added to this charming individual, as mentioned earlier, we have also have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and also three other groups, the Herodians, the Zealots, and the Essenes. So let's introduce all five groups briefly, as we set the scene for Jesus' arrival. Are we going okay? Are we going good? Alright, I'm sorry it's a lot of information, but I think it would be good if you knew this. Alright, first the Pharisees. They depended heavily on the scribes and were loyal to the law and religion of Jehovah. Especially the oral, oral law, or Mishnah, okay, which sought to apply the written law to everyday life. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, the oral law was so rigid with legalistic expansions that it had little to do with the original intent of Scripture, and had deteriorated to a formalism and a legalism that denied the spirit of the word. Did you catch all of that? Okay, alright. Secondly, were the Sadducees. They were related to the high priest and tended toward the more social, political, and earthly aspects of their position. The Sadducees belonged mostly to the wealthy, influential, priestly families, who formed the social aristocracy of the Jewish nation. To them, religion was religion, politics was politics. They were very skeptical of the Pharisees and concluded that the latter, that's the Pharisees, were old-fashioned, irrelevant, and fanatical. Are you getting this? (laughs) Let me just stop for a minute. I haven't written everything down, so let me just share a few things here. And give you a break so you can look up. <laughs> the Pharisees did not like the Sadducees. You see, you could, you could work and become a Pharisee. You couldn't do anything to become a Sadducee. That was the blue bloods. You're either born into a rich family and you get into this. Or if you're not, they just look down their noses at you. Alright, so there was this constant tension between them all the time. Alright, as we saw here, one group saw themselves as pure and committed to God, literally his word, which is very interesting, which then sidelined to what they call the oral law. So they went from and you know we, we see this happening today. And this is the reason why it is so important that we stick to the Word of God. Whatever rules and whatever laws that we make, they need to be based on the Word of God, not a branch of the Word of God and a hybrid of the Word of God that becomes something else in time to come. You know, And we can, we can modify things to a point where we can't remember where the original was. And this is what, this is what had happened with the Pharisees. They had modified it so much, That when Jesus came on the scene, they were so convinced that he was breaking the law, they never realized he was breaking their laws, which were no longer the law. Remember, Jesus said, I've come to fulfill every jot and tittle. That's right. Okay, he came to fulfill the law. He said, I didn't come to break it, I came to fulfill every bit of it. So, if you ever hear a preacher saying, well, you know, Jesus is the Son of God and He broke laws and it was okay for Him to do that because He was the Son of God. He never broke a law. They are sadly misinformed and they haven't understood that the people accusing Him of breaking the law were the people who no longer understood what the law was and had drifted so far from it, they couldn't even recognize that what they were enforcing was not God's law. Do you understand? All right, let's move on. Thirdly were the Herodians. This was a, a political party whose major aim was to further the cause of Herod's government. They were strongly inclined towards Hellenism, that's Greek thinking, culture and lifestyle, and were opposed to the Pharisees and their constant emphasis on separation. All right, now, fourthly, there were the Zealots. They would not conform to Roman rule. These people literally opposed Rome. They looked at Rome and said, you know what? We shouldn't be under Roman rule. Alright? They just rebelled. Constantly rebelled. In their opinion, God only helped those who helped themselves. The teachings of this group stressed a type of man-made military deliverance rather than divine intervention. It is strongly believed that Judas was a zealot. Do you see now? Okay. Judas never wanted the money. Otherwise he, would, he, would have, he wouldn't have returned it. He wanted to push Jesus to a corner. If he was a zealot and he was thinking, you know what? I know a guy. Okay, if we push him to a... He talks about peace and all, but I've seen him raising the dead. I've seen him walking on water. This guy can do anything. He can feed a whole army. Let's push him to a corner. Watch him come out fighting, and that will be the end of the Roman Empire. Do you understand? His betrayal was to push Jesus to a corner to deliver them from Rome. If Judas repented, he would have been forgiven. There's no sin that you can commit that is so great that the cross wasn't enough. Do you understand? But once you kill yourself, that's the end of it, man. It's done. Jesus said to the people that were crucifying him, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Wow. You think he wouldn't have forgiven Judas? Are you out here? Okay. The biggest mistake you can make is running away from God when you've made a mistake. Never do that. And never help anybody do that. Let's move on. Fifthly and finally, there were the Essenes. This group of people were religious, not political, with a passion for the spirit of the law and a separation to God. Some believe that John the Baptist was an Essene, or at least had some contact with them while in the wilderness, where he began ministering at about age 30. So we can understand why now he was out there, Why he was so against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and says, what are you you doing out here? They say, oh, we came to repent. Oh, I don't believe you. Go bring fruits. Show me that you mean it. And we'll see that soon. Because we're going to look at the life of John before we get fully into the life of Christ. In fact, this book ends at the life of John. And then we pick up the next book at the life of Jesus Himself, But there's a lot happened before he got into ministry. So, now we have the synagogues, the Greek language, the various religious groups, and of course the Roman Empire, known for building roads to every corner of the earth. Okay, in order to keep in touch with their ever-expanding territories. And where the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, that's where it comes from. Okay? Um, it is also these very roads that will later be used to get the gospel to every corner of the earth. Isn't God clever? So the Greeks come in, and they give everybody a language, a common language. Romans come in and build roads everywhere. God says, we're good, let's go. we got a common language, we got roads going everywhere, let's do this. So the stage is now set, and 400 years of silence is about to be broken. This time, however, it isn't just a prophet of God that will come on the scene, but God Himself. And finally, we will get to know God's heart, God's desires, and God's will. And experience firsthand, through the Gospels, the most extraordinary life that has ever been lived. The life of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Okay. Let's continue. We have a few more minutes, all right? The place to start our journey is in the Gospel of Luke, where it says in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 Most Honorable Theophilus, since many have written accounts, literally many have undertaken to draw up a narrative about the events that took place among us, specifically the things that have been fulfilled among us, referring to the fulfillment of prophecy, they used as their source. material, the reports, of, uh, the reports circulating among us from the early disciples and other eyewitnesses. Literally, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. That was a really key thing, that's why I put it in there. Who lived by the Word they preached, handed them down to us of what God has done in fulfillment of His promises, specifically the Old Testament messianic promises fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, since I myself have carefully tracked down and investigated everything, having traced the course of all things accurately from the beginning, from the time when the angel appeared to Zacharias in Luke one five onward, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account, a logical and artistic arrangement, though not necessarily chronological, for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that you may know the certainty, or literally may come to know the exact truth of the things you have been taught. That pretty much sums up what we'll be doing from this point on in our study. Okay, we are going to be looking at this one piece at a time. You are going to know more about the Gospels than you have ever known before. Okay, hopefully we'll get through this before Jesus comes back. It might be three yeah, yeah, yeah. it might be three of his years, but it's going to take a lot of our years to get through this anyway. All right, And uh, we'll be consulting from all the four gospels in order to get the most complete picture and accurate narrative possible of every essential aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus. Accordingly, when we come back, we'll take a look at John's gospel and see how he began it and the relevance of what he said. Take a break.